morning, CBF. Today's scripture reading is going to be from 1 John 3. It's going to be 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning, church. Good morning. That was a lot better. Hey, at least you cannot leave here today saying you didn't have or gave one smile to the pastor or one of them. Hey, I'm excited to be here with, with you this morning. Uh, it is always a privilege for me to share the word with you. Um, I, I know if Pastor David was here and he would share what I'm going to share with you, he would say the same thing, that we are the ones who benefit the most when we get a chance to preach because we spend a lot more time in the studying of the passage than the delivering of the passage. It's like surfing, right? Even though I've never done it, it, it seems like you work for... 35 minutes to catch a wave and then in 30 seconds you're back at the starting point. This is kind of what Sunday morning looks like, but I'm, I just appreciate the, um, just the opportunity to be here with you and to be able to open the Word. I also appreciate the fact that during our prayer time, we were able to thank some of our volunteers and I'm very thankful for all those of you who actually serve at any capacity here at CBF, God has not called you to be in a location without moving. He asked you to be moving and serving and loving one another. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And I struggled this week for a little bit because I wanted to find an illustration that was impactful to you, and I came up really short. And here's the reasoning, I think, behind the difficulty Every time we talk about love, we think about, m most people would say that they think about the uh, movie type of love. 
the Hollywood type of love. And today we have a passage here that's not a new message to any one of us, but the truths and the applications that are inside of this task, text are extremely powerful. So I, I felt convicted as I study to just move myself out of the way and just let God's word speak for itself. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray for us, and then we're gonna jump right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We praise you for the opportunity to be together, to be in a free nation where we can actually open your word at any time we want. We have the freedom to approach you at any time we want. Father, I just pray that the freedom that you gave us through Jesus Christ will not cause us or make us too comfortable to the point that we take you for granted. So Father, this morning as we look at your word and as we try to understand your love for us and how we're supposed to love one another as a privilege of being saved and reconciled to you, I pray, Father, that you would guide us and direct us. And I pray, Father, that you would move me out of the way, that your words would speak clearly to all of us. And Father, I pray as we approach you once again that we would remember the incredible love you showed us by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter three, Pastor David went through the first 10 verses last week, and now we're, we find ourselves in verse 11, but the, what the driving force of John's argument from verses 11 through 24 is not found in that passage. It's found actually in verse 10, which says this, at the end of verse 10, John writes and he says, is everyone, listen to this, everyone who does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love, so he's, he's, he's exemplifying what righteousness looks like. So righteousness for John here is the one who does not love his fellow Christian is not of God. Now John is writing to believers and he's saying if you don't do this, you do not belong to the one you claim you belong to. And then he dives right into verse 11 where he gives us an ultimate exhortation. Verses 11 through 15, and here's what he says, for this is the gospel message that you have heard from the beginning and that you should love one another. Now, those words are normal words. All of us have heard that message before that we should love one another. But John is actually, according to him, Love, if you notice, love is actually found in the gospel message. It's not found outside of the gospel message because it's not the type of love that we usually see on a screen. It's the love that is sacrificial, that is actually spiritually related, that is divine because of God's love for us. And, and his message is extremely significant because he, he's asking us to love one another as Christ has loved us, and he's going to do this because he's going to cite and quote John 13 when he writes verse 34 and 35, which he commands the believers, when Jesus commands the believers to love one another. He, he's actually reciting the instructions that Jesus gave to the disciples, now giving to the church. Sounds like what we're going to see later on today when we do communion. What I have received, I'm passing on to you. What Jesus spoke, now I'm speaking to you. And this is significant because if we understand that love is a command here, 
which it is, that means it requires an action from those of us who are in Christ. Verse 10, once again, the one who does not love his fellow Christian is not of God. So God wants us to accomplish this, and he wants us to love one another. So if we don't do this, if this action of love is not put forth in motion by all of us who claim to be in Christ, then perhaps verse 10 is true that the Lord's not in us. But why is this significant? It is significant because God in his divine character... He acted in love towards us, which caused his actions to become the commandment or the command in which John is actually writing right now to us that we must follow in obedience. So this is, this is actually so important for John that in John's letters, in his epistles, he's going to write the word love six times, and all six times are related to the command to love one another. Now, if I was repeating myself that we must love one another, that means a significant theme of my message. And John is doing that to love one another, and then he, he's going to contrast his request to the people with the expectation of expecting the expected. And what I mean by that is verse 12 and 13. Here's what we find. Here's the first contrast. Believers are not called to hatred. Verse 10, he says, that, verse 12, not like Cain. What do you mean not, not like Cain? Well, verse 11, that we should love one another not like Cain, who was the evil one and brutally, brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Now here's the first example that John is giving us, the first contrast. John's going to use a real life story to get each other's attention. So just think with me for a second. When you want to get somebody else's attention, you, you drive the point as close as possible to something that they will understand. All believers understood and knew about the, the story of Cain and Abel. So John's going to drive this, and notice, notice what he does here. Notice the description of Cain in John's words. He says this, he was of the evil one, and he brutally murdered his brother. He was of somebody that led him to put into action his beliefs. Now, Genesis chapter 4, if you go back in here, is not only a tragic story, it's a tragic story that shows the depravity of humanity based on Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they fall, they sin. And in, in Genesis chapter 4, we find the first family, now with kids, and the first relationship that's being displayed in there is two brothers who one kills the other. Sin didn't take 12,000 years to reach its peak. It was the next generation that we see that, and that's why it's in the Bible, and that's why John's making a point. Hey, listen, if you don't love, you are just like Cain. The one who was jealous towards his brother, and God ended up rejecting his offering because not only the offering him itself, but because of the condition of his own heart. 
John's point here is this. Cain's heart was evil, and he was not able to love. And a heart that, that's actually evil, it's a heart that's going to produce evil deeds just like Cain's heart. Now, let me give you a point here. And I, I use this as a word of caution for all of us. Darkness will always seek to destroy. What started with resentment and jealousy towards a brother led him to bitterness, which caused him to be angry, which led him to action, and the action was to destroy somebody else's life. So here's the, the challenge for all of us. CBF, make sure that when you imitate something, you imitate something that is based and found in God's word. Now, here's fa what is fascinating to me about verse 12 and 13. The second thing that John points out is that not only we're supposed to, supposed to not hate one another, but he says this, he says that we should expect hatred from the world, which means we need to expect the expected. I know this, the statement goes, always expect the unexpected, but according to God's word, he's saying to us, here's what you need to expect. Hey, I don't want you to be caught off guard because you're not expecting this. You need to live your life expecting that hatred is the affection that you're gonna receive from any outsider. And here's what he does, verse 13, therefore, do not be surprised Brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Once again, the, the phrase here, if the world hates you, presents hostility not as a potential, but as a present reality. You don't leave your house thinking that there's a possibility outside that somebody might say or do something against you because you are a fellow brother or sister in Christ you leave your house knowing that most likely that is expected. So the phrase here doesn't carry the potential, but the present reality that is to be expected. Just as love is a defined characteristic of all of those who are found in Christ Jesus, hatred is a characteristic according to God's word that defines those who do not follow the Lord Jesus. Now, I did some research this week, and uh, did you know that 80% of all religious groups in the world, 80% of those who are persecuted out of the all religious groups persecution in the world, 80% of them are Christians? For all 10 people who claim to follow any religion, eight of them who are persecuted are believers. Do 
During the Last Supper, Jesus Christ is sitting with his disciples and he commands them to love one another in John 15, 9 through 17. But do you know what happens right after this? Jesus immediately teaches them following the command to love one another that his disciples would experience hatred from the world. What was passed to John by Jesus, now John is passing to the church, and now we have the benefit of being 2,000 years removed from this text and be able to understand that God still wants the same thing from his children. The question that comes up here is, who is, G who is John calling the world? Well, if you know the context of 1 John, John is writing to believers, but a lot of people here that John is writing against now and he's confronting them are people who actually came to the church, were part of that group, and they left, and now John is calling them unbelievers or the world, which means that perhaps the people who sat right next to you a month ago are now the people who are attacking you because they really did not truly believe the gospel. In chapter 4, which we're going to see next week, John calls those individuals, if you look at it in here, verses 1 through 3, he calls them antichrist and false prophets. And then John comes to a quick conclusion in verses 15 and 14 to 15, and here's what he says. We now... We know that we have crossed from, over from death to life because we love our fe fellow Christians. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, John's conclusion here in verse 14 and 15 actually is that we know, and he's contrasting we who know the gospel in verse 14, with the world, in verse 13, that does not know the gospel. He's saying we who know the gospel are different from the world that does not know the gospel. So to pass here from death to life, because that's what's taking place to our, for our lives, right? In verse 14, it says we have passed from death to life. To pass from death, death, death to life is a reverse of the natural order of life. If you walk outside today, you'll see my, my wife carrying our 11-month-old daughter. Natural life starts, we grow, we mature, we get older, and we die. But listen to what John says in verse 14. We know that we have crossed over from death, the end of human life, to life. To pass from death to life here is a reverse of the natural order, which only happens when we understand Jesus' words written by John himself in John chapter 5, verse 24, where he says this, I tell you the truth. You can put it in the bank. And here's what it says. The one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but he has crossed over from death 
to life. It's, it sounds like John is plagiarizing a little bit of what Jesus has said. In reality, John is actually imitating Jesus to the point that now he wants his followers to understand the true message, which not comes from him, but it comes from the one who can save them. Eternal life is not earned. It's not achieved. It's not like I love you and you love me. All, all of a sudden, we all have eternal life. That's not how it works, and that's not what John is saying. What John is saying is that my love for you and your love for me is a reflection of the love that I have received on the cross of Calvary. And that's why love is not earned, is not achieved, is not purchased by, by us loving one another. But it is the evidence of one having crossed from death into life. Eternal life is a promise that God made us. 1 John 2.25, it says this, now, this is the promise that he himself made to us. And what's the promise? Eternal life. And it is a promise that's also found in Jesus Christ. If you go all the way to the end of the, chap the, end of the book, in, in chapter 5, verse 11, he says this. And this is the testimony of God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Jesus is the true eternal life. Verse 20 in chapter 5, and we know that the Son of God who has come and has given us insight to know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. And obviously, if we go back to the first two verses in chapter 1, we realize that the one who we testify from the beginning is the one that John is testifying all the way along. But here's the key, verse 13 of chapter 5. I have written, written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you, listen to the purpose, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't go to Walmart when you don't have it at home. You will not find it on Amazon online. Target doesn't offer it. Costco doesn't have it. It is him and him alone. So let me give you another warning. If love is the evidence of a transformed life, then hatred, listen to this, is the byproduct of death. Because according to John, the one who, who does not love remains in death. Not only we have crossed from death to life, but the one who does not love, he remains in that stage. What makes things worse here is the fact that verse 15 says this. Everyone, look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer. Everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer. A commentator says this, hatred is the desire to get rid of someone. Listen, the desire, not the action. The action is the fulfillment of a desire. But the desire to get rid of someone, whether or not one has the nerve or the occasion to perform the act. 
And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus is exemplified what some of those things look like. What is adultery? Is the action or is my carnal, sinful eyes looking at something I shouldn't the way that I shouldn't? So if loving one another is so important, here's a question for us. How are we doing? How are we doing? If we took a spiritual inventory, and the question was, if, if God was here, and, and John was here, and he said, hey, you know what? How are we doing? What would be your answer? What would cause us to embrace God's command seriously to love one another? And, and I don't mean, church, that we just know about it. but that we act upon the knowledge. Do we pray for opportunities? Verse 16 through 18, God's gonna give through John the ultimate example of love. And that's found in Jesus Christ's sacrificial love for you. Look at verse 16, it says this, we have come to know love by this. Now, how have we come to know love? What, what is John saying? He's actually pointing to the na nature of Christ's love for you, which is made known at Calvary, right? If this is true, then love, listen to this, then love is not passive, but active. It is not self-seeking, but sacrificially given. It is, it is not cheap, but it is costly. It is not worldly, but heavenly. It is not an offering to be purchased, but a gift to be received. It is not partial, but complete. It is not to be taken for granted, but to be treasured. It is never missing, but always present. It, it does not demand one to pick up his or her life, but it expects one to lay down his or her life for the sake of others. It calls us to be different than Cain and similar to Jesus. But if we're truly sheep, why do we desire sometimes, so many times, to dress up like wolves? Then he continues, verse 16, second half of this. It says, we have come to know love by this. And this is the explanation that Jesus laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. It's not even you need to lay down your life for those you don't know. Just, just look around. What he's saying is that you sitting here might have to lay down your life for somebody else sitting all the way up there that you don't even know. For whoever does, whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, the objective reality here of every believer is actually to love one another and to lay down his or her life for the sake of the one right next to us. 
In fact, what John's actually asking us to do here is nothing less than what Jesus commanded them to do. But how do we live with a lifestyle of laying down our lives? What does that mean? Let me, let me read the text to you again and make two comments about two words that will give you some insight. Here's what John says. Whoever has the world's possessions, literally what he's saying is the, world, the worldly goods, and sees his fellow Christians. So there's, there's an understanding that the person is in a visible position right next to us and sees his fellow Christian in needs and shuts off his compassion, which means right here, literally, he closes his heart and he closes all the affections that he would have for that person. So there are some implications here. Number one, we're called to use God's material possession as good stewards for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Now here's the key word of that, in need. Do not close your hearts towards the Christian who is in need because Christ has commanded us to do it. Now, let me, let me, let me make this a little visible to you. Open your hand in front of your body with me. And just, just imagine that everything that God has granted you and given to you in your life is here. All those things, they are a gift from God to you, but they're not yours. You're just the steward of those possessions. Just like myself as a father, I, I am not the father of those three kids they are the Lord's. I'm, I'm the one who is supposed to be the steward over their lives. And therefore, in life, I must walk in my Christian life with my hands wide open because when I do this, I tell God, God, I can do it on my own. And a lot of times when we do this as Christians, those are the moments that we close our eyes and we close our affections to the needs and the possibilities that God has created us for. So Christian, when you walk in this, in this life, this is not you. We used to joke back home, a friend of mine, he was such a cheapskate that he, you could put a, a little uh, airborne in his hand and he would close his hand and you would drop him into a river. He would cross to the other side and open his hand and his, his hand was so tight that the airborne was still the same way it was on the other side. This is not us. This is not my life. If the Lord has done something for you, it's his. Number two, you're not called to give your life. Did you realize this? He's not asking you to give your life. He's actually asking you to lay down your life. So you need to pay attention to a few things. Number one, you need to pay attention to the needs of others. This requires intentional focus. You need, you need to understand, here's what he says in, in verse uh, 16 and 17. He says that uh, we're not supposed to love in just um, with word or in tongue, which means that I need to use the words that I use 
for the edification of those around me. And that's why Psalm 19:14 says, let my, words and let my words, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you. Did you also notice that in loving one another, I need to be biblical. I'm not supposed to love in word and in, in tongue, but I'm supposed to, be, to love in deed and in truth, which means there's, there must be a foundation which propels you to move forward and to do the loving that God is requiring of us. That's why Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he talks about the motivation that carries his life forward, he says that the love of the Lord compels him to move in that direction. In the same way, the love of God must compel us to do those things. And you need to understand that the love of God only comes through his word. It must be biblical. And lastly, you must have an open heart. Ask the Lord to give you the wisdom that you don't have, the ability to see things that you don't have, so that he might be able to use you in the life of somebody, somebody else who is actually in need. Now let me give you an illustration. As I reflected on this text, I wanted to find somebody who was a believer who actually acted the way John is describing, and I came up with a few names. But the one name that kept coming back to my mind was a person who was not a believer and perhaps had the greatest impact in my life from the ages of zero to the ages of 13. And that was my grandpa. I remember a tough time in our family's history where my mom and my dad had just got a divorce and in the process of getting divorced, my dad lost his job. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so there was no finances coming our way to buy food. And as a kid, you don't notice things like that. You don't realize that there's things missing. You just live life. You play as well as you did before. You sleep just as well as you did, did before. But I remember something very special taking place in my family's life, especially in the relationship between my grandpa and my mom. And I would have to say in the relationship between my grandpa and his grandkids. Every other Saturday, my grandpa would ride his chariot with his white horse. And he would park his transportation method outside of my house and tie the horse on a telephone post. And then he would walk around his chariot to the back and he would grab... Uh, a bag, like a 100-pound bag, and he would bring that inside of the house. And for many months, he did that every other Saturday. Now, I don't know if I can say this or not, but I know that we survived through that time because of my grandpa's love for his family. But what is amazing about this was that my grandpa... He made minimum wage as a retired man, which right now in Brazil is $250 a month. And he shared what he had for the love that he had for the people in his own life, and that was me. But here, here, here's the point of this illustration. The, the point is this. If an unbeliever can have such love for his daughter and grandkids, 
how much more does the believer who has been transformed by the blood of Jesus have for those who are sitting across from them in church on Sunday mornings and on Monday mornings and on Tuesday mornings? I wonder sometimes if I have that love for the people around me as much as the love that my grandpa showed my family when I was a, a little boy. But isn't that what we're called to do? So let me give you a warning. We're not called to profess love only by words, but through action based on truth. And here's how John is gonna end this passage. Verse 20, uh, 19 through 24, he's gonna give us three things that are assurance to us that when we love one another, we can rely on those three things. And the first one is we, can, we understand that the believer's assurance when we love one another is, is put into practice signifies that we are in the truth. Verse 19 and 20. And by this we know that we are of the truth and we will convince our conscience in his presence that if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. When John states here, by this we know he's actually reaffirming that love and obedience we are supposed to exhibit and have exhibit in the previous section when he's called us to love. So, number one, the truth of God will actually serve to convince our conscience that his presence is there when our conscience actually condemned us. What should you, what should you do when that happens? Here's what you should do. You should go back to verses 11 and 18 and you should say, I'm going to walk in love. I'm going to follow the example and the lead of my Savior. Number two, you need to remember this, that God is greater than our hearts in kindness and in generosity. And he mo motivates us to resist the hardness of the heart that would refuse to show compassion to those in need. That is why our relationship with God is not based on how we feel. It's based on biblical truth. Spurgeon said this, sometimes our hearts condemn us, but in doing so, it gives us the wrong uh, verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case into a higher court. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So when your heart's condemning you, you bring that before the Lord and you remember, I have been saved and sanctified and the Lord's working in me and I'm gonna continue to love and move forward because he's commanded that from us. Number two, not only we understand that signifies that we are in the truth, but also it proclaims that we are accepted before the Lord. Now, do you, do you like that thought that you're accepted before the Lord? I realized that on my kids now, and looking back, that was exactly who I was as a kid. When, I, when you do something wrong, you're like, oh man, it's, it's almost like you shrink a little bit. And then your parents come over and they forgive you and they welcome, they embrace you, and all of a sudden you feel like accepted again. You feel like you, you're not missing anything here. And this is what John's saying, if, you're, if your conscience is doing this, you need to remember that you are accepted before the Lord as well. And he says this, verse 21, dear friend, if your conscience does not condemn us, 
We have the confidence in the presence of God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that, we, that, that are pleasing to him. Now, it's interesting that if we have true fellowship with God, we're not deceiving ourselves like John has said in chapter 1, then our conscience does not condemn us because, as Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. Not only that, but you and I have the blessing of assurance of answered prayers. Now, let me say this to you. Do you know that when you pray, God hears, number one, all your prayers? But do you know, number two, he answers all of them? Perhaps sometimes he answers yes. Perhaps sometimes he answers no. Perhaps sometimes he's going to say, just wait a little bit more. Not only he listens to us, but he answers all of our prayers. A commentator says, answer prayer is not a benefit that must be merited. Spiritual benefits are gifts of grace. However, there are conditions that must be met. And the condition here is that your obedience and your willingness from God's children to keep his command. And then he ends this section confirming that we are not only in the truth, that not only we have an acceptance before the Lord, but now he's going to finish this by saying that we are united with Christ. What a blessing. Now, this is the commandment, verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he gave his commandment, verse 24. And the person who keeps his commandments, did you pick up on the language of obedience? Keep up his commandments, resides in God and God in him. And by this we know that God resides in us by the spirit he has given us. Now first, there's two things here I want to mention to you before we close our time. To believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. This is the first time in John's writing that he will make this comment and that he will use the word believe here. And this is actually pointing to the acceptance as true believers saved by grace here by the Lord. If Christ has given us all of him, which he did, it is not much for him to expect that we give all of us back to him. The second aspect of this command here is to be, is to love one another as he has requested. This is no different than the commandment Jesus gave them in John 15, 12, when he says, you must love one another as I have loved you. Now, somebody says this, there can be no obedience to God's commandments if there is no love for one another. There can be no love for one another if people close their hearts to those in need. And there can be no confidence, which is the assurance that we just talked through, that we are accepted before the Lord, that we are in the truth, and now that we're united with Jesus. There can be no confidence when approaching God in prayer when people close their hearts to fellow believers in need. So biblical love 
is a type of love that will lead you to action. And consequently, the person who keeps his commandments that he says in verse 24, resides or abides in him. So for those of us who are in Christ, we know that we abide in him because of what Christ has done for us and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives after our salvation. So let God's love lead you towards loving a brother or sister in Christ who is in need because he loved you while yet we were sinners. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can be together. And Father, we love you that we can know for sure that you have loved us and you loved us to the point of giving your only son to die for us on the cross. Father, I pray as we celebrate community this morning, I can't think of a better topic or a better subject to celebrate community on a communion Sunday than the topic of God's love. And Father, before we, we celebrate this time, help us to remember that communion is, is one of the two ordinances that you have established for your church. And we're commanded by you to follow and to obey. So Father, for those of us who are in Christ and have accepted the gift of salvation, who understand what you've done for them, I pray, Father, that this time will be a time of celebration and a time to remember that you have done great things. In Jesus' name, amen.